Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Last Sunday was Father's Day. And it was a good Father's Day for me because I got to watch the NBA Finals and see my favorite team, the San Antonio Spurs, beat my least favorite team, the Miami Heat. So I really enjoy watching NBA basketball. I love basketball. Many of you know that a few years back, about 10 years ago, I broke my ankle playing basketball, my left ankle. And then last year, right around Easter, I broke my right ankle slipping on the ice. So I've broken both ankles Yesterday, we went hiking up in the mountains, Don and I did, and I was coming down the trail, and I, I tweaked my left ankle, and I thought, oh no, did I break my, my ankle again? And thankfully, I didn't break it, but this morning when I woke up, it was, very, it was very sore. So there's nothing like breaking a bone. How many of you don't have to raise your hands, but have broken a bone, fractured an elbow, had a shattered hip, fallen on the ice? I was talking with Terry this morning. She broke a bone. All of us have, have broken bones. Back when I was in high school, one of, the, one of the most exciting NBA finals was in the 1998 finals between the, the bad boy Detroit Pistons and the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, I, I was a huge Lakers fan back in the 80s with Magic Johnson and Kareem, and I hated the Pistons with Isaiah Thomas. But there was that game six in the 1988 finals where Isaiah Thomas, the point guard for the Detroit Pistons, he did something amazing. During the third quarter of that game, he came down on Michael Cooper's ankle and he twisted his ankle. He thought he almost broke his ankle, thought he was going to be out for the rest of the finals. He goes to the bench with this aching leg. And then 35 seconds later, if you remember, Isaiah Thomas emerges and he plays the whole rest of the game on one foot. He's hopping around on one foot. He scores 43 points and has six steals all on one foot. It was almost like he was unconscious. And and he ended the game with a jam left pinky, a poked eye, a scratched face, a ballooned ankle, and and had a a noticeable limp walking around with one foot playing basketball. Now, I don't know if you've ever played basketball on one leg, but I've broken my, my ankle playing basketball, and I sure did not want to get up and play the rest of it on one leg. It's no fun being injured. Some of you have had major injuries where you fractured a hip or you've had to have hip replacement or you've had to walk with crutches or you've had to go through um, rehabilitation. You've broken a bone. It's no fun walking on crutches. It's no fun walking with a limp. But let me just ask you a question. What if walking with a limp is exactly where God wants you to be spiritually? I'm just going to hang that out there this morning. As a question, listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, Is it not a curious thing that whenever God means to make a man great, he always first breaks him in pieces? Oftentimes, God has to wound us before he can use us. Oftentimes, God has to humble us before we can truly understand his grace. Oftentimes, God may transform us through pain. 
So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you walking with a limp? And I don't want you to answer that quite yet because you may not know exactly what I mean by that, but I'm just going to let it hang out there. Are you walking with a limp? Before you answer that question, we've got to get back to Genesis. We've, been, we've not been in Genesis for a long time. We, we've taken a, a kind of a break the past few weeks. So we're back in Genesis. We've been studying the life of Jacob. Now let's just do a little bit of a flashback on the life of Jacob because his life is kind of coming to a climax here in this chapter of, uh, of Scripture. How did Jacob and Esau live together in, in Rebekah's womb? Do you remember what the Bible says? It says they were wrestling with each other in the womb. And then when I, Jacob and Esau were coming out of the womb, what does it say? Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. So right from the very beginning, Jacob and Esau had a wrestling match. They were wrestling each other before they were even born. And then when they got older, remember Jacob wrestled Esau out of the birthright for a porridge, for, for a cup of red, of red soup. And then later on, he wrestled Esau out of the blessing by dressing up as Esau and tricking his father Isaac. And then, you remember, Esau gets really mad, and so Jacob has to flee, and he has to go live with his uncle Laban, and Jacob wrestles with Laban over wives and his daughters and these flocks. And so Jacob's life has been a life of wrestling, deception, conflict. He's always trying to outdo others. He's always trying to manipulate. He's always trying to be the con man. He's always trying to get a leg up. But yet there's one last wrestling match that Jacob has to undergo that's going to change his life forever. But before we get there, let's just kind of flash back a little bit. Let's kind of re- re- retrace our steps. If you remember from a few weeks back, J- Jacob had these two wives, right? Rachel and Leah. And they were fighting because they couldn't have ki- or Rachel couldn't have kids. And so there's this magical mandrake plant that we talked about. Supposedly the sus- sus- superstitious plant that is able to give uh, Rachel the ability to, to conceive and have children. And so they were all involved in this kind of magical type weird stuff. And then Jacob has these white sticks that he sticks in front of these flocks. And miraculously, they're able to breed in, in supernatural ways. And so there's all this weird mandrakes and white sticks. And you, you begin to shake your head and say, what's going on with all this superstitious magic? And you remember, God is the one behind the scenes that's really orchestrating these events. And then, in chapter 31... Jacob finally gets the upper hand, and he tricks Laban one last time, and now he's got his entire family together. Jacob has 11 children between Rachel and Leah and the two servant girls, and so he's got this this small army of a family, and now Jacob says, we're going back home. We're going back to the promised land. I've spent 20 years here with Laban. I've done my time. Now it's time for me as the dad to take my family, pack up, and let's go back to the promised land. And that's exactly what Jacob does. And so we come to chapter 32, where Jacob has his family packed up and ready to go back to the promised land after 20 years. But there's still one thing that's waiting him. Something that happened 20 years back his brother Esau. When Jacob tricked Esau out of the blessing, Esau plotted murderous revenge. And so Jacob has to go back. And he's probably thinking to himself, it's been 20 years. 
Is it water under the bridge? Will my brother forgive me? What's going to happen when I go back and have to face my brother? Would 20 years be under the bridge? So we get to chapter 32. And really from chapter 32, it unfolds in four scenes. Four separate scenes. So let's explore these four scenes together. Here is the first scene. Jacob fears meeting Esau. We see scene 1 in verses 1 through 8. So let's, let's read verses 1 through 8. Jacob fears meeting Esau. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus she shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob fears meeting Esau. So Jacob sends messengers ahead to find out what the, what the scoop is with Esau. It's been 20 years. Is Esau happy? Is he mad? What's going on? And what does he find out? Jacob's being very, very polite and very submissive. Notice the wording he's using. He's calling Esau his lord. He's calling himself a servant. And Jacob's worst fears are ignited. Because word comes back and says, yeah, Esau's coming to meet you, Jacob, and he's got a small militia with him. He's got an army of 400 men. What's the first thing Jacob thinks? He's coming with an army to kill me and kill my family. 400 men. So Jacob begins to fear. He begins to get upset. He begins to get distressed. And he says, okay, I've got a plan. What I'll do is I'll divide my family into two. We'll send one off this way. We'll send another off this way. In case Esau attacks, at least half my family will be spared. It's better to have half my family destroyed than my whole family destroyed. So we'll kind of do a trick here. We'll trick Esau and we'll divide my camp into two. And so he's stuck because he's left Laban, who he's tricked, and he's headed to the promised land. And as the father of this nation of the Israelites, soon to become, he's got to march forward and face what is going to happen to him. And so what does does Jacob do when he gets stressed out and when he gets upset and when he gets afraid? What do you do when you get stressed out and you get upset and you get afraid? You pray. You pray. And so this is scene two. Jacob prays desperately to the Lord. We see a recorded prayer in the Bible of Jacob. And I love this prayer. Let's read this prayer. This is scene two, the the desperate prayer of this afraid man. Verse 9, <coughs> excuse me. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham 
And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the longest recorded prayer in Genesis. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jacob. Now, I find it interesting sometimes to read recorded prayers in the Bible. When you read the prayers of people in the Bible, it informs us of how we are to pray. They they serve as a model. When you see people praying in the Bible, you you look at that and say, "That's, that's a good model for us to use in how we pray. And so Jacob's prayer is broken down into four parts. There's four aspects of his prayer. Here's the first aspect. It's the address. Notice what he says in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord. He's appealing to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of his grandfather Abraham, the God of his father Isaac. He's not praying to some generic deity out there. He's not just praying to some generic God. He's very specific. I'm praying to the Lord. I'm praying to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. It's not just some distant God out there that that we think is going to hear us. But do you realize that? Do you ever stop and realize, maybe this doesn't shake you the way it shakes me, when we pray, we are praying to a God who, number one, is the living God, and number two, he actually hears us, and number three, actually answers our prayers. That may, may seem elementary for us as Christians, but we are praying to the living God. When we were in India, one of the days, the morning, we went, and some of the, the kids shared about this last week when we had our India worship service, we went to a Hindu temple. And as you go into the Hindu temple, I mean, there's idols all everywhere. And people are going there praying to dead, dumb idols. It would be like me praying to this plant or me praying to this, whatever this thing is, this monitor feedback thing. I don't know what it is. It says Yamaha on it. Me praying to something up here. Me praying to a microphone stand. You know, oh, microphone stand, will you help me? It's like, you know, it's that crazy that they would pray to an inanimate object to somehow give them what they need. But we as Christians pray to the living God. We pray to the Heavenly Father. How did Jesus tell us to pray? Jesus gave us the model prayer in Matthew 6. What does he say in Matthew 6, 9 through 10? Jesus says, pray then like this. When Jesus tells us how to pray, we better listen. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus tells us when we pray, we pray to our heavenly father who's in heaven. He rules, he reigns, he's holy. He's the holy heavenly father. We pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for his will to be done. We are addressing the God of the universe who is our loving heavenly father. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's exactly what Jacob's doing. He's drawing near to the throne of grace to his heavenly Father. O Lord, O Father, O God of Abraham and Isaac. But what's the second part of his prayer? It's in verse 10. 
It's a confession of humility. Listen to Jacob's prayer. Listen to this confession of humility. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. I'm not worthy, God. I'm not worthy for you to answer my prayer. I'm not worthy to even pray to you. I'm not even worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of your grace. Jacob uses two words there. I'm not worthy of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two words together, steadfast love, hesed, that strong covenant love that God gives to us when we're unfaithful. The the way Jacob uses these words in the original language conveys the idea that God is not obligated at all to answer our prayers. God is not obligated at all to somehow condescend and give us what we need. But yet Jacob is saying, I'm casting myself totally at your mercy. I know I'm not worthy of your mercy. I know I'm not worthy of your love. I know I don't deserve it. But I'm casting myself at your presence, Lord, because I know that you show love to your children. He doesn't come into God and demand, hey God, I demand that you do this. Hey God, you've got to do this. No, he comes in and says, I'm not even worthy to have the least amount of love. I'm not worthy. I'm little. I'm insignificant. Do you see a change here in Jacob's character? He's becoming humble. He's confessing his littleness. He's confessing his inadequacy. He's confessing his dependence. It's a lot the way Daniel prayed. Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 has an interesting prayer. If you remember the story of Daniel, Daniel is in Babylonian exile. He's been taken out of Israel. He's in Babylonian exile. He gets up and prays, looking to the east, longing to go back to Jerusalem, longing to have his people back, and he's praying for God to take his people out of exile and bring them back to Israel. And listen to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, 18 through 19. It's very similar to this idea of Jacob. I'm not worthy, Daniel. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that's called by your name. For we, this is, this, is, this is where it connects, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel says, I'm not praying because I'm great or I deserve it or, or I'm worthy. It's not because of my righteousness. There's nothing in me that motivates you, God, to answer this prayer. The only thing that I can cast myself on is the fact that you're merciful that you have steadfast love, that I know that you're a God who cares, and I'm not worthy of that, but I'm calling upon your name. And look at the third part of Jacob's prayer. It's the request itself. Paraphrase. God, don't let Esau kill me. (laughs) Look, verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I fear him. I'm afraid, God. I'm fearful of Esau. Esau means red. Remember, I don't want to have to see his red face coming at me with these 400 men. God, deliver me. Save me. Save my children. Save my wives. Save me. I plead, Lord, please beg you, Lord, save me. And then the final part of Jacob's prayer is the solid hope in God's promise. Notice verse 12. Jacob in his prayer talks back to God something that God spoke to him. But you said, I will surely do you good And make your offering as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob basically says, God, you made me a promise. You made my grandfather a promise back in Genesis 22. You made my dad a promise. And you made me a promise that you're going to protect me. You're going to be with me. I'm going to have offspring. 
I'm going to be a great nation. I'm going to be a blessing. And so I'm banking everything, God, on your promise. I know I'm not worthy of it. I know I'm little. I know I'm insignificant. But you're a big God. You're a great God. You're a trustworthy God. You can be counted upon. So I'm going to pray to you because you're a good God. Notice what he says here. But you said, I will surely do you good. Do we believe that our Heavenly Father has our good at heart? Listen to this passage of Scripture from Jesus in Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Our Heavenly Father loves to give good things to His children. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So Jacob's desperate, Jacob's afraid, Jacob's a praying man, but Jacob's still a maneuver. He's still a, a manipulator, so he's got a plan. Here's scene three. I'm going to butter up Esau and send him a bunch of gifts. So here's scene three. Jacob sends gifts to Esau to hopefully help him not be angry and show forgiveness. I'm going to pray to God, and I'm going to trust God, but I'm going to just, in my back pocket, have a plan. Let me send 550 animals ahead and give this as a gift to Esau, and maybe he won't be angry with me after these 20 years. So let's just keep moving here. Verse 13. We'll go quickly through this part. Actually, you know what I'll do? I'll just paraphrase this part. Basically, what Jacob says is, send 550 animals ahead so I can butter up Esau. That's basically the plan. I'm going to send these afraid, but just look, look with me at verse 20. Verse 20, you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob's behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Jacob sent 550 animals, flocks, herds, thinking maybe Esau will be pacified, maybe Esau will forgive me, maybe these will be a goodwill offering for Esau, and he won't kill me. But scene four is the climax, really, of Jacob's life. Scene four, the last part of this chapter, is the most important part in Jacob's life. So let's read this final scene together and spend more time here. Scene four, Jacob wrestles with God. Let's pick up in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, You, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. 
So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This section is shrouded in a cloud of mystery. There's not a lot of information that Moses, the writer, gives us, but we do see a few things here. First of all, it takes place at night. It's under the shadow of night. Now, we're not sure why Jacob takes his whole family out at night to cross this river. Maybe he's afraid of Esau. Maybe he thinks if I do this at night, we, we can sneak up and, and not worry about Esau coming. We really don't know. We just know that it's at night, secretly. But notice the setting. It's the Jabbok River. You may know nothing about the Jabbok River, but it's important. The Jabbok River is the border to the Promised Land. It is the border between where Jacob had been for the last 20 years to cross over to be in the Promised Land. Now look at the name Jabbok. If you switch the letters around in Jabbok, what does it look like? Jacob. Jacob, Jabbok. It's a play on words in the Hebrew language. Do you know what the word Jabbok means? It means a twisting or a wrestling river. The Jabbok River was a wrestling river. Jacob's life had been one wrestling match after another. He wrestled his brother Esau in the womb. He came out grabbing Esau's heel. He wrestled Esau. He wrestled Laban. And now he's going to cross the wrestling river. But until he does that, before he does that, there's one last wrestling match that Jacob has to undergo. He sends his family ahead. We're not sure why he sends his family ahead. We don't know if he's a coward or we don't know if he's being noble. There's mystery here. But there's one thing we do know, and that's what verse 24 tells us. Jacob was alone. He was all alone. Alone in the darkness, no animals, no family, nothing. He's there by himself. This is very significant because Jacob has to encounter God alone. You and I must encounter God alone. There are times in your life and my life where we need to just get away from everything. We need to get away from family. We need to get away from the trappings of our world. We need to get away from the temptations. We need to get away from from everything that, that ties us down. And we just need to get alone with the Lord and get in a posture where God can deal with us. And I'm afraid as Christians, we don't take the time to get away and be alone with God. And children, teenagers, youth, it's not your parents' faith. It's not your grandparents' faith. It's your faith. And you need to get alone with God. So those of you that are going to camp this week, I encourage you to get alone with God. Get yourself in a position where God can do a work in your life. So Jacob's all alone, and all of a sudden this mysterious man comes out and begins wrestling. How would you like to be awakened from your sleep to be put in like a full Nelson? I don't know what it would be. this man wrestles, this mysterious man wrestles with Jacob. And it's a long wrestling match because they wrestle all night. You remember how strong Jacob was? A few chapters back, remember how he moved that big well, that big stone off the well? They are gruelingly wrestling all night. He's wrestling this mysterious man all night. And then it's almost dawn, which is important. 
The sun is about to come up. And this wrestling match has been going on all night. And suddenly the man touches Jacob on the hip. And it torques Jacob like crazy. Now it's interesting because the Hebrew word used there for touch, it doesn't mean that you know, God punched him or God torqued it. It's a small little touch. After wrestling with him all night, God just says, boop, touches Jacob. And he's, I mean, he's in writhing pain. And something mysterious happens. What would you expect Jacob to do once his hip had been pulled out of socket? Time out. You'd expect him to go over, maybe nurse the wound, get a drink of water, fall down in the fetal position and just cry. We don't know what he would do. You would think, as Jacob has been maimed, has been wounded, has been crippled, that he would want to get away from the man. But in a surprising turn of events, what does Jacob do? Jacob grabs onto the man, this mysterious man, even harder. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Look at what the text says. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched him in his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. That's that's, that's God or the man. It's mysterious. I think it's Jesus, by the way. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He holds on tightly to God, holds on tightly to this man and says, You've destroyed my hip, but I'm not letting you go until you bless me. What has Jacob wanted his entire life? He's wanted the favor and blessing of others. Isaac did not care about Jacob. He favored Esau. Jacob wanted the blessing of his father. Jacob wanted the blessing of his drop-dead gorgeous wife, Rachel. Jacob wanted the significance, the blessing of being accepted, uh, of having, uh, having people like him. And all of a sudden, he realized that dads disappoint and wives disappoint, but the only one who doesn't disappoint is Jesus. So what does he do? He grabs on and says, I don't care if you hurt me in another place. I don't care if you pop my knee out of joint. I don't care if you torque my shoulder. I don't care what you do, but I'm holding on to dear life because I want you. Jesus, please bless me. That's all that matters. But then there's this tension. I mean, think about the scene here. Picture it in your mind. Jacob's dripping with sweat. Jacob is breathing heavily. Jacob is probably in huge pain. And he's grabbing on to, to, the, to God. And then all of a sudden, what does God say to him? Look at verse 27. He said to him, what's your name? Now, does God need to know Jacob's name? Is this like a newsflash to God where God's like, okay, I don't know your name, Jacob, so tell me, who have I been fighting with all night? Please tell me your name. No, God knows exactly who it is he's fighting with. Who's this for? This is for Jacob. What does Jacob have to say? He's dripping with sweat. He's writhing in pain. He's wrestled with God all night and he has to finally come to the realization of who he is before the living God. My name is Deceiver. My name is Heel Grabber. My name is Wretched Sinner. 
My name's Jacob. My name's Jacob. But then God does something and says, that may be your given name, deceiver, but because I'm the living God, I'm going to change your name. I'm the only one who has the power to change your name. You're no longer going to be called Jacob. There's a new name coming. I'm giving you the name Israel. Israel means fights with God. Israel means strives with God. Fitting name for the nation of Israel, right? For the rest of their history, they're going to be fighting with God. Your name is now Israel. And only God can do that. Only God can change someone's name. Only God can change an identity. Only God can do this. When you wrestle with God and he hits your hip and he changes your name, only God can do that. And Jacob is so overwhelmed, he says, okay, what's your name? He wants to get God's name. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. No one's going to get my name because I don't want this to be something about, you know, you being puffed up in pride because you got to fight with me. No, let's keep this in perspective. As a matter of fact, Jacob, it's almost daylight. And you know what happens at daylight? If you see me, you will be annihilated because no one can see the Lord and live. That's why it had to happen at night. Now, it's interesting. The man leaves. We don't know if he just disappeared, if it was a beaming up Scotty moment. We don't know. All we know is that Jacob, after the man leaves, realizes that he had been fighting God. Now, Hosea tells us something interesting. Hosea 12.4. The prophet Hosea, speaking about Jacob, says, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Now, the text here in Genesis doesn't say that Jacob wept. But Hosea said he wept. He pleaded with God. He he fought with God. And then the man leaves after blessing Jacob. Interesting. God blesses Jacob personally. Look at verse 30. Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and I haven't been annihilated. Paraphrase. I've wrestled with God, and he's not annihilated me. He's not scorched me off the face of the earth. He's not decimated me into power. I have literally fought with the living God all night. He's changed my name, and I'm still alive. I'm going to call this place the face of God because I've seen God face to face. I've seen God face to face. And I wasn't wounded beyond repair, but I was wounded to walk with the limp. God did something to me. He made me walk with a limp. And the fight had to end before sunrise. Remember when, when, when Moses wanted to see the face of God? What did God say to Moses? I mean, Moses walked with God. Jacob wrestled with God at night. And Moses wanted to see the face of God. What did Moses say? Exodus 33, 19 through 20. God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show you mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Jacob has a new identity. He's now Israel. Profoundly significant, because where is Jacob? He's on the border between where he was for 20 years outside the promised land getting ready to enter the promised land, and now he's going to enter the promised land as Israel, the father of the nation, who's eventually going to take the nation Israel. And only God can prepare 
Jacob to do that. And it's a foreshadowing of how the nation of Israel, when they got into the promised land many years later, they're always going to be fighting with God. They're going to live up to their name. But for the rest of his life, Jacob would walk with a limp. He would walk with a daily reminder that God had changed his name, but that God had wounded him. In verse 31, notice what it says. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. The sun rose. The sun is rising. It's a new day. Jacob has a new name. It's a new era. Now he's Israel. Things have changed. Just hours before, in the darkness, he's fighting God. God touches his hip. God changes his name. The sun comes up, and now it's a new day. Now, does this make any sense to you at all? How does God bless Jacob? By wounding him. How does God strengthen Jacob to go face Esau? By humbling him. How does God transform Jacob? By wrestling with him. Sometimes, God must wound us before he can use us. How does God want us to walk? How does God want us to live our lives? Does God want us to live in prideful self-sufficiency where we've got our whole act together and we're walking in our own power and we're walking in our own strength and we've got both feet planted on the floor and we've got our chest out and it's all about us? Is that how God wants us to walk? Or does God want us to walk with a limp spiritually? Meaning, I'm dependent. I'm weak. I've been wounded. I've been changed. I'm walking with a spiritual limp. Remember Paul's testimony? Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh was, but he pleaded with God three times, take it away from me. And listen to what God says. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10, I think Paul understood what it meant to walk with a limp. Paul can relate to Jacob. Listen to the words of Paul. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And God doesn't answer his prayer the way Paul wants him to. Paul, Paul, God doesn't take the thorn out. Listen to what God says, or Jesus. He said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In essence, you could say Paul learned how to walk with a limp. Are you walking with a spiritual limp? Has God so wrestled with you and and in his grace wounded you and in his grace come to you and changed your name and you've had that encounter with God where he says, what's your name? And all you can say there in your weakness is, my name is Wretched Sinner. My name is Deceiver. And God says, no longer, I'm going to change your name. Your name is now Israel, which, which not only means Israel doesn't also just mean strives with God, but who is Israel? The children of God, the people of God. You've gone from sinner to now a child of God. 
And this is a picture of the gospel. You see, when we come to Christ in the gospel, we're like Jacob. We come in our prayer and we say, I'm not worth anything. I don't deserve any of your love. I come and I cast myself at your mercy, Jesus, and I know that I don't have the right to, to demand anything from you. But God comes in his grace and God comes and he royally messes up our lives and God comes and he, and he shatters all of our pride and he comes and he changes our name and he gives us new life and he gives us a new identity and he says, now you're a child of mine and now you're spiritually part of my family and I may have had to do a work of wrestling with you to get you to where you need to be and then you come out of it walking with a limp which means that you're now fully surrendered to God you're fully captivated by Christ and you're walking in his power not your own we're dependent we're weak we're not self-sufficient but we're dependent and weak because his grace is sufficient has there ever been a time in your life where God wounded you I went, or a time in your life where you wrestled with God. When I was 16 years old, God called me to the ministry. He called me to be a pastor. I surrendered to that call, what I knew of it as a 16-year-old, and shared it with my church family, and, and my youth pastor gave me opportunities to be able to, to lead in middle school ministry, and I got to preach a few sermons here and there, and then I went off to college, and, and I went to Glorietta, where our youth are going this afternoon, and it was during that time that God reconfirmed his call on my life and called me into the ministry and, and put that call on my life. And then I got married to Dawn, and, and I kind of graduated from college and started thinking, I want to go down the career path. I want to step, step aside this call of God on my life. And, and I want to, all my friends are graduating from college and they've got nice paying jobs. And here I am, I'm stuck in retail doing nothing with my life, with no future. And I've got a degree in film and video production. Let's pack up our family and let's move to Hollywood and let's make a name for ourselves and let's just do something great for Sean. And I wrestled with God about my future. And God had to wrestle Would this stubborn man finally surrender to God's call on his life? And so one Sunday morning, I'm sitting in church. I'm the worship leader, by the way. I'm up there playing guitar, leading worship. I sit down thinking this is going to be a normal Sunday. My dad's the pastor. I have no idea what passage of scripture he preached on. All I know is he preached a message on being totally obedient to Jesus. And so I'm sitting there during the whole service thinking, boom, the Holy Spirit's about, is, is having his blows with me. You ever had one of those worship services where the Holy Spirit's, you know, dealing those blows? If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, is what Vody Bauckham would say. And so I'm under strong conviction, and, I, and I'm supposed to get up and, like, lead the invitation hymn. I'm thinking, how am I going to be able to lead the invitation hymn? I need to go down there on my face. So we get in the car, we start driving, and I, I turn to Dawn, and I just start bawling. I just start, like, the floodgates of, 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 of pain and frustration and, and, and disobedience just start flying out at Dawn, and I'm just sobbing, and I'm like, I've been totally disobedient, and I've not been walking with the Lord, and I've been, this is not where, where I'm supposed to be, and I, I, need to, I need to confess my sin to you, I need to confess it to God, and I just start just unloading on her. And instead of playing Holy Spirit Junior, which wives or husbands, please don't do that with your spouses, my wife very kindly and gently said, I know, I've just been waiting for God to get a hold of you and I've been sitting back patiently letting God do his thing. And I was very appreciative of that. And it was in that moment that I realized that for the past couple of years I've been wrestling with God and he'd finally won. And I, don't, I can't say that I walked away with a spiritual limp, but I do know it was a significant moment in my life where I realized 
I fought God and he won, not me. And he's done a significant change in my life. And there's great joy that comes when you wrestle with God. There's great joy that comes in being humbled by God. There's great joy that comes in being wounded by God. That doesn't sound very, very, very sophisticated. Uh, yeah, Pastor Sean, we, we all want to be wounded by God. That, that doesn't sound very fun, does it? But I would say this. The times that God comes to you and wrestles you and wounds you and deals with you and confronts your sin, those are the times of the greatest grace in your life because you come out on the other side with a limp, and that's a good thing. Because that means God has changed you and it's a daily reminder that you're dependent upon his grace in the gospel. God often wounds us before he can use us. Have you experienced the blessing of being wounded? Have you been so broken over your sin and seen the depth of your sin and heard those words of God say to you, what's your name? And you have nothing to say, but I'm a sinner. And you cry out for forgiveness and you cry out for acceptance and you cast yourself totally on the Heavenly Father and he looks down with love because of what his son Jesus Christ did on the cross to die and rise again. That's the first step of being broken. The first step of being broken is just to admit your sin and come to Christ in salvation. If you haven't done that this morning, I would encourage you to be wounded by God in salvation. Be broken over your sin and come to Christ in salvation. That's the first step. But for the rest of us who've done that, maybe some of us in this room need a good wounding. Maybe some of us in this room need to have an intense wrestling match with God. And let me just say this. If God in his sovereignty were to come to you and, and he wrestles with you and he begins to work and shape you, don't, don't, don't run away from it. Be like Jacob and say, I'm going to grab onto it. Because this is the only place I've got to grab onto. So when God wrestles with you, when God comes to you, don't run from God, but grab onto God and say, God, you're all I have. And find in him that joy. Find in him that strength. The song we often sing at church is, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. In those times where God wrestles with you, grab onto him and say, you're all I've got, Jesus. All I have is Christ. So I'll ask it again this morning. Are you walking with a limp spiritually? Let me ask you to bow your heads.